Welcome to PharmaTalk Radio. I'm Valerie Bowling. I'm delighted to share both an entertaining and thoughtful session from the 2018 DFARM Disrupting Clinical Trials Conference dedicated to service and patients. The R&D side of biopharma needs to be more service-oriented, and in this podcast, we introduce you to Dr. Chip Bell, a service guru and keynote speaker. Enjoy the podcast. Well, I am thrilled and excited to be here. Thank you for giving me this special opportunity. And as I think about our time together this afternoon, I have two hopes. One hope is I hope you find this session powerfully relevant, that you walk out of here with a lot of new insights and a lot of new ideas and a lot of new tools and techniques you can use to create great experiences for those you serve. That's what we're going to talk about, creating great experiences. You're going to hear me talk about the fact that I think that's a critical part of clinical trials and retention and advocacy uh, related to that. My other hope is I hope you have a lot of fun. I love talking about this topic, and I hope this is a session you remember as a super positive experience. As a matter of fact, I hope you look back on this session this afternoon as the most significant emotional experience of your entire life. I'm going to look upon this session as a complete waste if it doesn't make you rich and famous and improve your marriage and help you lose weight. (laughs) One of my goals this afternoon is to make you a really great lover. Um, So I always kind of like to know what I'm working with. Show hands. How many of you are already great lovers? Let's see what we got going here. All right. (laughs) What does this mean? I don't know. (laughs) Well, we're going to be talking about great experiences. And while we're going to be focusing... Uh, on your patients, don't be surprised if you get a few insights and a few ideas that might spill over into other parts of your life. But thank you for giving me this chance. I, uh, I have deep respect for who you are. I have great admiration for what you do and the kind of lives that you've impacted and the ones that you'll be impacting in the future. I've gotten a chance to do a, a little background of research about you, and I want to offer a special thanks uh, for these folks you see uh, on the screen because they spent some time with me on the phone giving me back uh, background about your uh, industry, about your work, about your challenges as it relates to this particular topic. So I'll off- offer a particular uh, special thanks for them. We live in challenging times, don't we? And everything I've heard uh, today, I just got here uh, late last night, uh, has given me even more of an understanding of the challenges that you face. But I think there's a a great opportunity ahead, and that's what I want to focus on. You know, let me tell you a little bit about the work I do. I don't work in your industry. I I have done work in pharmaceuticals, but my work primarily works with B2B companies and B2C companies, companies that serve customers, all around how they can create a great experience. So I work in the retail space with hospitality industry and the airline industry, companies like Southwest Airlines and companies like Ritz-Carlton Hotels who care a great deal about uh, the customers. And it hit me that in many ways, some of the challenges they face, I know they're different, some of the challenges they face sound like the same challenges that you face in your particular industry. And these are three of them. You know, this hotel, this Marriott Hotel, worries a lot about guest retention. Are they going to come back? 
Are we going to give them the kind of experience? Are we going to be able to attract them in the first place? What you might call volunteering to be a part of a trial. And they also care a great deal about are the guests who leave this hotel or any other business, are they going to be advocates on my behalf? And so as I dig into some of your research and I think about the fact that 85% of clinical trials fail to retain enough patients. Sounds like a retention issue. And when I read that over two-thirds of sites fail to meet the original patient enrollments for a given trial, sounds like trying to acquire sort of new customers is a challenge. And when I read that 50% of sites enroll one or no patients in their studies, it sounds like there's an advocacy issue. And so I think there are some, some relationships between what any organization that has customers face and what you have with your patients. Now I know some of you say different. You know, wait a minute, we're different. We're not like that. We're, we're different. I hear all that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, our, some of our, our, our patients don't have a choice. So like you have a choice for the power company you have, right? So what do they call you, rate payers, or do they call you customers? And so what I'm saying is, we, 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 I think there are a lot of similarities, and I want to I focus on it, because I, one of the things I learned in, is, is I, what is it that causes people to drop out of a clinical trial? And, and these are the, the themes I keep hearing over and over, and I found this particular study that I thought was particularly interesting as to why people drop out of a trial. Inconvenient location, schedule conflicts, misunderstood expectations. Sound like a service issue to me. Forgetting a visit. I don't ever forget to go see my dentist because I get a text the day before saying you better come to your dental in the morning at 8 o'clock. You know, or lack of appreciation. I don't feel valued, I don't feel important. So at least half of these seem to me have some relation back to the experience patient are getting, are getting in a clinical trial. But I would submit maybe some of those others that you see below also could be influenced by the experience that they get. So thinking about that and knowing this is all about innovation, I, I, you know, I wanted to start with a quote from Google. Uh, Larry Page, CEO of Google, who many consider Google to be one of the most innovative companies on the planet. And I thought this was a great quote. Today's a uh, fad is tomorrow's antique. If you want to know what customers of the future, that'd be your patients, are, expect, take a look at those that today are your most loyal customers. Those are your advocates, and that may be a peephole in what they're going to want in the future. So we need to think about what, what do our customers expect from us? What are our patients? Your patients are customers. What do they expect from you? What are they experiencing today? And how might they view you through that lens? You know, Uber, we all like to talk about Uber and Lyft as sort of the preeminent disruptor. And, and, and what's important to remember is that Uber, let's start with Uber, didn't just disrupt the taxi industry. They, in, they disrupted lots of industries. So because of Uber, And that whole technology, now I got the Domino's app, and I can can text the cook who's preparing my pizza that I forgot 
to include jalapenos on my pizza, and if it's early enough in the process, I can get it changed. And I always know when to put the dog out because they're about to ring the doorbell because I see them coming on my smartphone. Well, the fact that this hotel lets me not only remotely check in, but I don't even have to go to the front desk. I bypass the front desk and go straight to my guest room and open my door with my smartphone. Now, I live in that world now, and many of your patients do. Uber did that. Uber started that kind of thinking. So what might that do to their expectations? And how does that affect you? Or some of the new cool things we've got. What does it mean that Amazon just unveiled their smart store where they don't have any cashiers, they don't have any checkouts. Now they're getting to open another store in New York. What does that mean for you? And your, what your patients now view you through that lens. Or the fact that we've got beacons now going on. The fact that we've got chatbots. You know, now we got this really cool thing. Google's come out with this, you know, uh, intelligent virtual assistants or changing the way companies interact with their customers. If you don't know much about it, Google it. <laughs> I couldn't resist that. <laughs> so even the fact that Amazon bought Whole Foods, we kind of go, whoopee-doo, they bought Whole Foods, they're probably going to get in the grocery industry, but it's not about that at all. It's about the fact that they are now using Whole Foods as a laboratory to test all kinds of new technologies that are going to impact your patients' lives. And these, what you see here is a tech map of some of the vendors they're working with around all kinds of changes in the way we think about buying groceries. I'll just point out a few. They got real-time shelf management. They've got store robots and chat box and augmented and virtual reality and interactive displays and beacons and location tracking, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We need to know about this. We need to know about this because that's what your patients are experiencing, and they bring that to you. So looking through that lens, what does that do? How does that change how we think about the experience? And are we experimenting all the time in the experiences? In the experiences. I know you live in the world of experience. I know you live in that world. But how much time do we spend? You know, I was delighted to hear talking about you know, trials by mobile and virtual trials. And we've got to think about the fact that millennials are, it's all about digital, not analog. We need to think about that. I love this quote from Jeff Bezos at Amazon, companies that don't continue to experiment, companies that don't embrace failure will eventually get in a desperate position where the only thing they can do is a Hail Mary bet at their very end of their corporate existence. I think it's a peephole into where we're going. And a recognition that those organizations that don't think beyond the way we've always done it, they're, not, they're going to be left in the dust. We know customers have changed dramatically. They have far more choices. Would you say the choices you've got now are greater than the ones you had 10 years ago? Now, what does that do? What it does, when I, the more choices I have, the more it forces me to look at the experience to make a decision, amplifying the experience's importance in my purchase. The fact that they're a lot smarter. The last hotel, you, when you were going on a vacation, you were going to stay in a hotel, and you went online, and you looked, at, you looked at the website of the hotel you'd never been to. You didn't pay attention to the pretty pictures. What'd you read? The reviews. And the reviews are about experience, amplifying experience. 
And the fact that they do get great service in little pockets of their life, they use that experience to judge you. So I was at Disney World last week, and now I'm dealing with one of your sights. So what am I, what am I the lens I'm looking through? You know, I, 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 I call up FedEx, and they answer the phone in the first ring, and then I call you. What I'm saying is, all the experiences get generalized to every, everything else. Whether it's fair or not, that's how our customers today are looking at it. That's how your patients are looking at the experience. So we've got to begin to think about, what do they want? What's, what do patients today want? And how might that impact the way I do my operation? How might that impact the way I even think about it? You know, I hear people say, well, we don't have any control over the sites because they're owned by someone else. You think Marriott owns this hotel? I can guarantee you Marriott doesn't own this hotel. They don't. They don't own hotels. But I guarantee you, if the experience level at this hotel dropped, Marriott will have a lot to say about it. And, and they'd probably get to the point, if it was not very good, they'd pull the flag. <laughs> you wouldn't have Marriott out front. You'd be looking at somebody else. So in some ways, you are like that, I think. In many ways, think of the sites as kind of like your franchise. You know, you might not own it, but you certainly can have influence over the kind of experiences that they provide. And Marriott spends a lot of time worrying about what their guests say about them. So, you know, what percentage of, what percentage of your patients return the site survey about their experience? What do we know about their experience? What do they tell us? How do we spend time learning what matters to the customer? What would your organization be like if you competed for patients with the same fervor you competed for molecules? So what do they expect? Very quickly, I'm going to go through five things I think are tantamount in the eyes of your customers today and give you some examples. And I tell you what, I'm not going to use any examples from your industry, just like your customers don't. Well, I tell you what, of all the pharmaceutical companies I've worked with, they're the best. You know, of all the trials I've been to, they're... so we need to think about how do the, what are the what are my patients experiencing, and maybe I use that as the as, as the perspective to look at the experience that I create every day. Know me, know me at a deeper level than ever. You know about their the medical side, but how much do we know about their expectations? How do we know, how much do we know about what, I, what matters to our patients? How much time do we spend getting to know them at a deeper level? Include me. Make me feel like a partner with you. I mean, you've got conferences, patients as partners. And they are a partner. I mean, clearly they co-create the experience with you, with the site, with you. They co-create the experience, Right? But do we treat them like a co-creator? Do we treat them like a partner? Enlighten me. Make me smartest person on the planet. You know, I, I, I know particularly when it comes to my health, knowledge is power, Alexander Pope wrote. And so the more, the more you can make me the smartest person on the planet about whatever it is that affects my life, the more my loyalty is going to be there. And and unburden me. Make this experience one that's not so challenging, difficult. 
cumbersome, effortless, full of, full of anxiety and worry and angst. And finally, let me know you, that I matter. Acknowledge me. You know, every time you hear somebody use the word subject, you know, have them put $10 in that jar on the desk. But that's what I'm saying is we've got to change. I, I, I've worked a lot in the, air, in, in the utility industry. And they still, some of them still, utilities want to think of the, as, as the customers as rate payers. You know, that's how they think of their rate. Because, you know, they don't have a choice. You know, we're the only game in town. You know, of course, Tesla's going to put a battery in everybody's house and they're going to cut from the grid. They might be worried about it. Or all kind of alternative powers come along, they might worry about it. But what I'm saying is, is we've got to think differently about how we treat that customer in a way that tells them they're important, that tells them they are valued. How many of you are familiar with uh, Coke Freestyle? This is kind of the coolest thing uh, Coke's come out with in a while. And if you hadn't seen it, it's coming to a shopping center or a, or a theater near you. Now, the way this thing works is you walk up to uh, the vending machine, and the first thing you get is you get a screen that gives you a choice of all the Coke products they have. And then the next screen comes up, and you get to pick what flavor you'd like to add to what Coke product you selected. Between those two screens are over 100 combinations. And then it dispenses your beverage. Now, I want to tell you, this is one of your big competitors. You say, Chip, son, it's a Coke machine. <laughs> You've been drinking too much Coke. With... Every night, this vending machine offloads all the choices made that day to the R&D facility. Every vending machine offloads all the choices that day to the R&D facility in Atlanta, Georgia, enabling Coke to create a product unique to a zip code if they chose to. Don't knock it if you hadn't tried it, friends. <laughs> but in the interest of full disclosure, I'm going to tell you, I'm waiting on that sucker right there, buddy. <laughs> now, what's the point? What's the point? If the vending machine down the street can do that, what do you think you, your patients expect of you? Again, they expect you to know them and know, their, know about their lives at a deeper level. Know me. Know me. You know, this is a fun question I always like to ask. What is the question Disney guests most frequently ask a Disney cast member? Where's the restroom? No. Where's Space Mountain? Nope. Where's Mickey? Nope. You're going to be surprised, but it has a lot to do with you. The most frequent question asked, this is true, asked of a cast member by a Disney guest is what time does the 3 o'clock parade start? <laughs> Honest engine. That is the most frequently asked question. Now, People who work at Disney know that. They know that, and they know the answer is not, well, three o'clock, dummy. What they're really asking is, how soon should my family go to Main Street so we can get a good seat on the curb for the three o'clock parade? That's what they're really asking. And if they didn't really know well, 
their guests, they'd miss that. They'd miss that that's really what's being asked. You know, I was listening to the presentation before lunch about how, you know, how many times patients don't ask for their data because it's not positioned in a way where we know that's really what they want and how to approach it. They don't just say, could I have my data? Could I have? You know, I don't, you may own it, but I have a right to They don't, it's not about they don't know to ask for it. They, we don't hear them asking that in the way in which they interact with us. So again, it's knowing them at a deeper level and communicate with them their way, their way. You know, I, my insurance agent and I talk all the time. One of the questions he asks every year when I meet with him to have our annual review of my policies, how would you like me to communicate with you this year? You know, we're amazed how over the 10 years how it's changed. It's not any, any mail or, you know, or as a text me or whatever. And, and we've got this new thing on the, on the screen called the IVA. You're going to hear a lot more about the intelligent virtual assistant. Again, if you hadn't heard much about it, I'd Google it. It's pretty cool what they're coming out with and where it's going. And again, my point is, but the other thing is what's at the bottom of that sh uh, slide, and that is, and in my language. Talk to me like, like not, don't talk to me in clinical trial language. Talk to me like I need to talk to. That means we need to create a culture of scouts where everybody in the entire journey map is, is, a, is a scout constantly looking to help update our information and intelligence about what matters to our customers. And we've got to find ways and unique, unique ways to ask that question. But before I go there, I want to just, just tell you one quick example of what I mean by the unique ways. I've got a good friend of mine who was, for, he's now an association executive, but for many years he was the hotel general manager of a huge hotel in Dallas. And he knew when guests checked out that, that when they were going to be asked, how was your stay, he wasn't going to learn anything. Because we all got the answer to that question, how was your stay? You know, fine, that's what, but you don't learn anything. So every quarter he held focus groups with the taxi drivers who frequented that property to take guests back to the hotel, back to DFW. And he learned in those focus groups a lot of insights about guests. For example, he learned that when they talk about the fact that their towels smelled a little scorched, like they'd been in the dryer too long in housekeeping, what they really worried about was a fire started in housekeeping. When they talked about the fact that there was a light, a security light out in the parking lot, what they really were worried about was the security in the hallway. When they talked about the fact that there are dust bowls under their bed, what they really worried about was, are there bugs in my room? So it wasn't just information, it wasn't just understanding, it was insight he was gaining. That's what I'm saying. What do we do to gain insight, deep insight about what matters? But I want to move to our, our next one and talk about include me. Make me a par partner. Betty Crocker came out with the coolest pro product in the world called Bisquick. Just add water, you got really great pancakes and biscuits. It was so successful that Betty Crocker decided to apply it to cakes. So the first cake they came out with was a white cake. And it bombed. It was a terrible failure. They couldn't figure out. Why would Bisquick just add water work, but cake just add water fail? So they did what any smart company would do. They asked the homemaker, and they found that the homemaker's pride in making pancakes was not the same as the pride in making cakes. 
And so some smart person says, why don't we take the powdered egg out of the cake mix and let the homemaker add a real egg and the product took off. It's all about inclusion. It's all about participation. And it's about making that inclusion really matter. This is Matt, where I buy my Jack Daniels. Matt wanted to come out with his own brand of bourbon. Now, I'm a whiskey drinker. You know, I don't, I'm not a big bourbon fan. But he wanted his own brand. So he worked out this deal with a Kentucky brewer to come out with his own brand, his own bottle, his own label and everything. And they sent him five flavors in a bottles like that. And he had to decide which was going to be his signature bourbon. Well, what did he do? He invited his customers in to decide. And they test, you know, and they all got to test each five flavors and write down what they thought was the best. And based on what they said, that's what he came up with. There he is setting them all out. Some of us went more than once. but the, uh, <laughs> And there he is. There's his brand. There he came out with it. It was a runaway success sold out like that. It sold out people who didn't even buy bourbon. I'm going to buy some of that stuff. Why? I helped make it. So he came out with another one. And then he came out with another one. And then he came out another one. He's on his fifth barrel. All because of that same principle. Looking for ways to say, how do I make my, my patient feel that they're a part of this? That they're, that they're a partner? And make it matter. I love this story about Sainsbury, the grocery store in London. And, and they had this, this tiger bread, and they got a letter from a three-and-a-half-year-old, a three-and-a-half-year-old. Three I put it up here on the screen. Her mama helped her tie it, type it, and there it is. Dear Sainsbury, why is tiger bread called tiger bread? It should be called giraffe bread. Love from Lily Robinson, age three-and-a-half. But that, take a look over here. She got a letter back from the customer manager with a gift card explaining how the baker thought it looked like a tiger, but you're right, it looks more like a giraffe, you know, and signed it, Chris King, age 27 and a third. <laughs> I think that's where the key. But here's the next part. This is the next part. It's what's really important. Look at here. Now what's in the stores? Thanks to the clever suggestion of one of our customers, we've changed the name of our tiger bread to giraffe bread. Don't worry, the recipe hadn't changed, and the bread still tastes as great as ever. It's valuing. It's not just inclusion. You know, my wife and I were all, went to Hyde Park this past summer, and, and then we went to the Culinary Institute of America, as some of you know, it's up there, and, and we, had, we had lunch, and, and the woman who waited on us was graduating the next day from the CIA, and... She was all excited, and one of the people in our party ordered uh, lamb chops. And so she said, like she's supposed to say, I love this story. She said, now our chef, now you think about the chef. The chefs that work there are like super chefs. They teach world-famous chefs. Our chef recommends this dish be ordered medium rare. But do you have a different opinion? Think about how cool that is. Do you have a different opinion? Because your opinion is just as important as the one of a world-famous chef who's supervising all of us. Think about that. It's that attitude I'm talking about. What if you patients were always asked about their expectations before a clinical trial? Always ask. But, I, you know, and it's asking, getting everybody involved. This hotel was rated the number one hotel in America, USA News and World Report. Uh, the, the inn at, at uh, Seattle, and I interviewed the general manager. How did you win this thing? We got everybody in the organization asking that question, one magic question. What's one thing we could do to make your experience more excellent? 
got everybody involved. Just that inclusion, that participation made a big deal. It's making it a part of who we are and our culture. But I want to move to our next one and talk about Enlighten Me. Enlighten Me are all the ways that we help our patients get smarter. You know, when, Dom, when, when Starbucks first came out, a number of years ago, my business partner just got crazy over Starbucks. I mean, he'd get the small town size three times a day. And he got a lot of extra shots of something in there I didn't want to know about. And he said, you got to go to Starbucks. I'd never been in there. I said, no, John, I've heard the coffee's way too strong. He said, you got to go, you got to go, you got to go. I said, okay, John. So I finally went. And we walked in. We walked up to the counter, and this man started speaking Italian. You know, I don't speak Italian. I speak Texan. And, and so uh, the woman, I said, look, John, all I want is a small cup of black coffee. He said, no, you want a tall? I said, no, I want a small. Then the woman came over and said, can I take your order? I said, look, I just want a small cup of black coffee. She said, you've never been in here, have you? I said, is it that obvious? She said, don't worry. She said, I got the remedy. She said, I can give you this. Looks like that. I can give you this. It's a training manual. I took this thing home. I said, I'm not going to be embarrassed again. You open it up. First section, learning the lingo. You want to speak Italian? Three pages of this stuff, you know? Then here's a section called, what's your drink? And then here's one called your espresso choices. Then here's one called your syrup choices. Then one called your milk choices. Then one called your other choices. Then here's a section called fun with frappy choo-choo or something like that, you know? And then how to order, just like what I was looking for. They even had a little example here and a little worksheet on the back. I couldn't wait to go back to Starbucks. I walked right up to that counter and I said, I'd like a mocha grunge hoochie-coochie. Now... I'm not talking about a little book. I'm talking about thinking like this. Thinking like this. What can we do? What are some of the unique ways in the retail world, you know, proactively providing customers new and useful information increases the likelihood of them doing business with you again 32%. Just that alone. We gotta find ways. And it's all about learning about what is important. And, 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 and making us smarter. You know, I want to get smarter. And I want my patient to get smarter. This is my gorgeous wife. And the guy standing next to her is Johnny Adair. Johnny is her hairdresser. About once every two or three months, Johnny gets a permanent. I said, Johnny, why do you do that? He said, well, I've realized that when my customers get a permanent, it's generally one of the most awkward, uncomfortable, sort of embarrassing moments for most of my customers, and I, I kind of want to know what they go through. So I realized if I get, get a permanent every so often, and based on what I've learned, I've changed the experience for my customers. See, that's the kind of thinking I'm talking about. It's not just helping our patients learn, I'm smart, and you, I'm going to make you smart now. There's a lot we learn from them as well. So it needs to be that, again, that learning partnership, thinking collaboratively. I love Southwest Airlines and how they handle their, their, uh, their safety thing. And many of you have taken Southwest, know how it's funny. You know, they do a lot of funny things. This is one of my favorites. Smoking's never allowed on board if you're caught smoking. Fine is $2,000 if you wanted to pay that for your airfare, you'd have flown with somebody else. But I want you to think about it. We all like the fun atmosphere of probably the most regulated industry in the country. See, we get behind that sometimes. Well, you, you know, Chip, you don't understand. We're really highly regulated. 
try getting them regulated like the airline industry. Well, you understand, Chip, you know, uh, uh, we, we're unionized. 85% of their employees are unionized at Southwest, and they still are able to. But I want you to think it through the lens of Southwest Airlines. What if they were in charge of rewriting your ICFs? That's what I'm thinking. What if we thought like that? How do we create everybody being a mentor our patients? You know, some of you may know the street sweepers at Disney get four days of training. Now, how long does it take to learn to work the business end of a broom? Not four days, but they've learned those street sweepers get more questions than anybody in the theme park. So when somebody comes up to a street sweeper and says, where's Space Mountain or, you know, where's the bathroom or my little boy wants to know who Snow White's second cousin was on her mama's side or all those questions, they don't want them going, I don't know, go ask her. She's in guest relations because she may know that person is the most important mentor to the guest who paid $100 to be there. We've got to create that kind of thinking. Well, we all see everybody in the organization as a mentor. But I want to move to unburden me. Because I think this is an important one. And that is, how do we manage the experience so it's not a burden? How many of you have ever walked out of a shopping center and for an uncomfortable period of time were not able to find your vehicle? A lot of you. Happens to me all the time. I got a red truck like everybody else where I live. Now, how many of you have been to Disney World? Or Disneyland? How many of you have were not able to find your vehicle after being at Epcot Center of the Magic Kingdom. Not able to find your vehicle. One person. How'd they do that? How'd they do that? When you arrived at Epcot Center of the Magic Kingdom, high school or college kid made eye contact with you, motioned you over to a parking space, you got out with your family, and that kid said two things to you. Remember to lock your car and take your keys, and remember you are in the Pluto lot. Now, you probably thought, isn't that cute? They named all the lots by the Disney characters. If it stopped there, it'd just been cute. But it didn't. You walked over to the edge of that asphalt and waited on that tram to come pick you up to go buy your $100 ticket, 130 if you got the hopper ticket. And as soon as you boarded the tram, the kid driving the tram said, those of you now boarding the tram want to remember at the end of the day to come back to the Pluto lot. After you've enjoyed Epcot Center of the Magic Kingdom, you'll want to make sure you come back to the Pluto lot. Low lot. Now you've heard it three times. Disney actually sat down and calculated if we mention the lot once, 75% of people remember it. If we mention it twice, 90% of the people remember it. But if we mention it three times, everybody, but one person, <laughs> will remember the name of their parking lot. You say, Chip, son, cute story, but parking lots is not our challenge. It's not about parking lots. I gave that example to a big hospital I was working with, and they go, well, I get it. We're supposed to name all our parking lots by body parts. That's what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, I think you're in the kidney lot. No, it's not about naming parking lots. It's that Disney cares about ending memories. The kind of memories that cause a patient in a trial to advocate. What is the ending memory you want your patients to have? And how do we manage the parts that we can manage? I know. I understand all about being maintaining distance and the purity and all of that, and we can't influence it, and then, you know, all that. I get all that. But you have a lot more influence, I believe, than we exercise. How do we make sure they end with a marriage? And part of it, part of it is unburdened is, does it make sense? It makes sense to your patient. You know, I, sometimes we think we're supposed to simplify. And the truth is, 
Patients are fine with complex. What they don't like is it doesn't make any sense. That's what we don't like. You know, I stopped at a fast food restaurant not far from where I live. We'll call it Burger Queen, but you know who I'm talking about. And I got in the driver drive-in. I went up to a little speaker thing. I told the individual I'd like a double whopper, an order of fries, and a small Coke. He read the order back. I said, yeah, that's correct. However, I said, instead of getting ketchup with my French fries, I'd like some of that barbecue sauce. He said, no. The barbecue sauce comes with the chicken tenders. I said, well, that's okay. I'll be glad to buy some of that barbecue sauce. He said, no. The barbecue sauce is free. I said, terrific. I'll have some of my French fries. He said, no, the barbecue sauce comes with the chicken tenders. I said, aren't you the restaurant that promises have it your way? He said, that only applies to hamburgers. See what I'm saying? It doesn't make any sense. But it's not just sense making too. We need to pay attention to does it leave that patient with anxiety and uncertainty? It's not just physically effort. You know, this is Amy. Uh, Amy, Amy work. Next slide. There, there's Amy. Amy, Amy's on my team. Amy took her her husband and her two boys to Hawaii last summer. And, uh, of course, you've got, they're teenagers, you know, teenage boys. You know, they get, they, they get bored in about a nanosecond. And so one long, they hadn't been in Hawaii very long, and they all wanted to go parasailing. How many of you been parasailing? Several of you. Well, you know, you could, nothing more effortless than parasailing. I mean, you could be totally unconscious, and you'd be just fine, you know. They harness you up in that thing, you know, and the boat hits that engine, you go up in the air, and you just ride, ride around. There's nothing more. It's not like hang gliding or skydiving. It couldn't be more effortless. But if you take a look at Amy's face, <laughs> it might be physically without effort, but it's still got an emotional angst attached to it. We've got to pay attention to that side as well. So part of it is how do we build in the kind of metrics and feedback that we want, you know? hospitals I work with live and die by Prescani. You know, and they pay attention to it. You know, like, like the person we just had come up, talk about health grades, you know, as a physician. They care about all of that. So what, what is the metric that exists in your world from the patient's perspective? And why wouldn't we have some sort of metrics that would say, how do we keep track on the patient's views of what we do that would influence our practice practices and make sure there is accountability for what we're talking about. Look for ways to build it. But I want to move to our last one and talk about acknowledge me. Acknowledge me, because I thought it was really amazing. One of those 10 reasons why people drop out of trials was I felt unappreciated. I felt unappreciated. I felt like, golly, these are people who you know, is, it, it, we just heard in that last presentation, I'm, I'm a blue-collar worker, and I've got to give you up t- 10 weeks over a six-month period, you know, period to, be, to go in a, good gracious, 12 days or something like that. I mean, I, that's a lot. And nobody's saying thank you. Nobody's saying I appreciate you. I know you do, but I mean, it's not, sometimes that doesn't happen. And, and, and today's, today's customers are different. You know, they want experiences that are, that are enchanting, that, that have a sense of demonstrated uniqueness and caring. You know, they want value unique experiences. They get it everywhere, you know. 
there was a large brokerage firm that just decided to have fun with their phone system. You know, the one punch two if you want this, punch three if you want this. They decided to add punch eight if you want to hear a duck quack. Over a million people <laughs> called every week just to hear the dang duck. It was jamming their system and costing them a fortune. They finally had to take it out. Now, what's a punchline? Customers today are bored. Apparently, for some of them, it doesn't take a whole lot to entertain them. But <laughs> my point is, we look for evidence that says that it's part of who we are. William James, the great philosopher, said the deepest craving of human nature is the need to be valued. We need to find ways to say, you're valued, you're important. And do it in ways that, that are highly personalized. This is Francie Johnson. Francie's our new pharmacist at CVS. We love Francie. Francie has completely transformed that CVS. Before Francie came on the scene, it was sort of okay. You know, it wasn't bad. It was just okay. Now it's sort of a destination. You got out-of-town guests, you got to take them to CVS, you know. I mean, even the kid who works, that nerdy kid that works up there in the camera section where you have your film developed, even he got happy. That's a miracle right there. You know, and you go in, I mean, she's just, I mean, you're talking about animated. She's animated. You go in, drop off your prescription. I'm an impatient person, as you can tell. And, I, you know, I, and I'd say, well, Francie, how long is it going to take? And I'd be pacing around. She'd say, oh, Chip, why don't you go up there and check your pictures? No, Francie, I don't have any pictures. Well, go up there and look at somebody else's pictures, you know? <laughs> Or better yet, check your blood pressure. By the time you get back, I'll have your prescription all done. You know, before Francie came on the scene, if a doctor called in a prescription, you'd get home late in the afternoon and you'd hit your answer machine, there'd be a mechanical voice. Someone in this household has a prescription ready to be picked up. Boy, I'll tell you, Francie did away with that. There wasn't anything acknowledging about that. Our vet called in a prescription for our cat. We got home that afternoon, hit that answer machine, there's Francie's voice. Taco, meow, meow. Tell your parents, meow, meow. You have a prescription ready to be picked up, meow, meow. I bet you my wife's told a hundred people, you know. Not only did she call the cat, she spoke fluent kitty. That's what I'm talking about. It's the little things, and it's not just big stuff. It's making it matter. You know, this is Phoebe. This is Phoebe. This is the, the, my doctor. That's, she's the nurse at our doctor. And I had my physical not too long ago. And you know how it is when you get your physical. You don't get to eat after drink after midnight. And uh, I like uh, only water. I mean, that's all you can have. And I'm a big coffee drinker. And I like that flavored coffee. You know, and you can't drink that. And my, my physical was at 10 a.m. I'm telling you, I am dying. You know, 10 a.m. I hadn't had any coffee. And so as soon as she took two vials of blood, which is the first thing to do when you get your physical, she turned behind her. I don't even think, I didn't even see it. She said, I believe you like your hazelnut black. All of a sudden, Nurse Phoebe was Saint Phoebe. That's what I'm talking about. It's those little things that say, you're important, you're valued, and we want to demonstrate that you're valued. You know, caretaking it's not about an attitude, it's action. We take action. And so look for ways to say, what can I do to demonstrate that I care, that I care? Let me close by saying that I've heard this echoed through a lot of the presentations I've heard today. At the end of the day, it's about culture. It's about an environment. And we all have some role in, in creating and, and, and maintaining a culture and shifting a culture that's, 
that's, that, that's, that, that's not just about the science, but it's also about service and how we create great experiences for those we serve. I love this quote from probably one of the greatest entrepreneurs and disruptors around, Richard Branson. No matter how visionary, brilliant, or far-reaching a leader's strategy might be, it can all come undone if it is not fully supported by a strong, spirited, and affirming corporate culture. This is not the end. This is not the end. This is the end of my presentation, but this is not the end. It's not the end because, you know, uh, you've all heard, the, you know, it's not about a destination, it's a journey, which is true. If we could somehow get our patients to stop changing their expectations, it'd be a lot easier. But I can guarantee you, Amazon and, and Zappos and Nordstrom's and Disney and all these other service providing organizations are going to keep changing their expectations. And that means we've got to continually change with them. And I hope this few minutes has given you some new eyes about what are the things we need to pay attention to if we want to serve a sensitive culture. But just like this picture, it's not easy, always easy. It's got a lot of hills and valleys and a lot of twists and turns. But I hope you're on a path, and I've been very impressed by not only this conference that Val puts together, but also who I'm, the, the kind of questions you've asked in that presentation but I, I, and I wish you the very best because all of us, all of us as citizens of this country depend on your work. It's been an honor for me to share this time with you. Thank you so much and God bless you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed the podcast from DFARM. DFARM 2019 takes place September 17th and 18th in Boston. For more information, visit theconferenceforum.org.